Chapter twenty six of Gone to Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gone to Earth by Mary Webb. Chapter twenty six. Undern was in its June mood. Pinks frothed over the edges of the borders, and white bush roses flung their arms high over the porch. All was heavily fragrant, close, muffling the senses. The trees brooded, the house brooded, the hill hung above deeply recollected. The bats went with a lagging flight. It was like one of those spellbound places built for an hour or an aeon or a moment on the borders of Elfdom, full of charms and old wizardry, ready to fall inwards at a word, but invincible to all but that word. The hot scent of the trees and the garden mingled with the smell of manure, pigsties, cooking pigwash, and Vesin's Tom Moody tobacco. It made Hazel feel faint, a strange sensation to her. Vesin's stood surveying them as he had done on the bleak night of Hazel's first coming. Where, he said at last, the countless fine lines that covered his upper lip from nostril to mouth deepening, where's the reverend receiving no reply but a scowl from his master he led the horse away reddin with a kind of gauche gentleness said i'll show you the house they went through the echoing rooms and looked out of the low spider-hung casements where young ivy leaves soft and vivid had edged their way through the cracks they stood under ceilings dark with the smoke of fires and lamps that had been lit unnumbered years ago for some old pathetic revelry. In cupboards left ajar by a hurried hand that had long been still hung gowns with flower stains or wine stains on their faded folds. The doors creaked and sighed after them, the floors groaned, and all about the house, though the summer air was so light and low, there was a moaning of wind. It was as if all the storms that had blown round it, the terror that had been felt in it, the tears that had fallen in it, had crept like forgotten spirits into its innermost recesses, and now made complaint there for ever. A lonely listener on a stormy night might hear strange voices uplifted, the sobbing of children, songs of feasters, cries of labouring women, young men's voices shouting in triumph, the long intonations of prayer, the death-rattle. And as Reddin and Hazel, surely the most strangely met of all couples that had owned and been owned by this house, went through the darkening rooms, they were not, it seemed, alone. A sense of witnesses perturbed Hazel, a discomfort as from surveillance, a soft rumour as of a mute but moving multitude crept along the passages in their wake. Be there ghosts, she whispered. I'd liefer sleep under the blue roof tree. I feel like corn under a millstone in this dark place. It's said to be haunted, but I don't believe it. He glanced over his shoulder. Who by? People that failed, weaklings, men that lost their money or their women, and wives and daughters of the family that died young. What 
for did they fail? Silly ideas, not knowing what they wanted. Dear now, Foxy and me, we dunna allers know what we want. You want me. Maybe. If you don't, you must learn to. And if you don't know what you want, you'll come to smash. But when I do know, folk take it off me. A long, mournful cry came down the passages. Hazel screamed. Be that the lady is no gold comforts, she whispered. No, you silly girl, it's a barn owl. But she said to cry in the copy on Midsummer Night. Things crying out as have been a long while hurted, murmured Hazel. Tonight's Midsummer. Was she little like me? I don't know. Did Summit Strong catch a hold of her? A man did. He laughed. Did she go young? Yes, she died at nineteen. And so will it be with me, she cried suddenly. So will it be with me. Dark and strong, in the full of life. She flung herself on a faded blue settee and wept. The impression of companionship, of whisperers breaking out, hands stretched forth, the steady magnetism of countless unseen eyes, was so strong that Hazel could not bear it, and even Reddin was glad to follow her back to the inhabited part of the house. This is the bedroom, Reddin said, opening the door of a big room papered in faded grey and full of the smell of bygone days. The great four-poster, draped with a chintz of roses on a black ground, awed her. Reddin opened a chest and took out the green dress. He watched her with an air of proud proprietorship as she put it on. She went down the shallow stairs like a leaf loosened from the tree. Vesens, a beer-bottle in either hand, was so aghast at the pale apparition that he nearly dropped them. I thought it was a ghost, he said, a comfortless ghost. So I be comfortless, Hazel said to Redden when Vesens had retired. Her voice had a sound of tears in it, like a dark tide broken on rocks. And when I was comfortless at the mountain, Edward was used to read, Comfort ye my people, as nice as nice. Are you fonder of Marston than of me? I dunno. She sat down sadly in the home that was not home. She remembered the half-finished collar she was knitting for Foxy. Also a custom had grown up that she sang hymns in the evenings to Edward's accompaniment. She missed these things. She missed the irritations of that peaceful life. Mrs. Marston's way of clearing her throat softly and pertinaciously. Martha's habit of tidying all her little treasures into the kitchen grate. Edward's absurd determination that she should have clean nails. The ever-renewed argument. Foxy's a bad dog. She inna, she's a good fox. In my sight, she's a bad dog. Now she had floated free of all this. She was out of haven on the high seas. She felt very lonely, as the dead might feel, free of the shackles of life. 
It was certainly pleasant to wear the green dress, but she missed her little duties, clearing away the supper, Martha being gone, fetching the candles. Mrs. Marston always shook her head at the third, not from economy, but from vicarious philoprogenitiveness. Edward's reading of the book, last thing, had made her restless. She had thought it a bother. Now it seemed a privilege. To most girls, God's little mountain would have been purgatory. To her, it was wonderful. It was the first time she had shared in the peculiar beauty of home, the daily sacrament of love. Edward never forgot to kiss them both when he came in, brought them flowers, was always carpentering at surprises for them. These last never turned out very well. His technical skill was not keeping pace with his enthusiasm, but Hazel was not critical. She, in common with the other little creatures, sat down in his shadow as in a city of refuge. Mrs. Marston shared this feeling. She always fell asleep at once when Edward was at home in the evening, ceasing to invent alarms about black men creeping through the kitchen window, Foxy getting into the larder, and a great tempest from the Lord blowing them all to perdition because Lord's Day was not kept as it used to be. Into the parlour, at his own good time, Vesins brought the supper and dumped it on the large round table veneered like mahogany, heavily Victorian and ornamented with brass feet. There were bread and cheese, bacon and a good deal of beer. Hazel saw nothing amiss with it, for though she had begun to grow accustomed to respectable middle-class meals, life at the callow still seemed the homelier. Reddin looked up from cutting bacon to say with unwonted thoughtfulness, "'Like some tea and toast?' He felt that toast was a triumph of imagination. He was rather dubious about asking Vesins to do it. So instead he repeated, "'You'll have some tea and toast.' Vesins went into the kitchen and shut the door. They waited for some time, and Hazel, who, whatever her fate, her faults and sorrows, was always as hungry as Foxy, looked longingly at Reddin's cheese and beer. Physical exhaustion brought tears of appetite to her eyes. At last Reddin went to the kitchen door. "'Where's that tea?' he asked. "'Tay?' "'Yes, you fool. I know nothing about no tea.' "'I said you were to make some.' "'Not to me.' "'And toast. I've doubted the fire.' He had just done so. "'Look here, my man, there's a missus at Undern now. You please her or go. She tells me what she wants, I tell you. You do it.' "'I'll have no woman over me,' said Vesson sullenly. "'Never will I. Never a missus did I take. Not for all the pleasures of bed and board. No, ne'er a one I ever took. Maiden I am.' to my dying day. The coupling of the ideas of Vesins and maidenhood were so funny that Reddin burst out laughing and forgot his anger. Now make that tea, Vesins. She unna be here long? asked Vesins craftily. Yes, for good. Hazel heard him. For good? Did she want to be in this whispering house for good? 
Who did she want to be with for good? Not Reddin. Edward? But he had not the passion of the greenwood in him, the lust of the earth. He was not of the tremulously ecstatic company of wild-hunted creatures. If Reddin was definitely antagonistic, a hunter, Edward was neutral, a looker-on. They were not her comrades. They did not live her life. She had to live theirs. She wished she had never seen Reddin, never gone to Hunter Spinney. Edward's house was at least peaceful. And what, she heard Vesans say, will your lordship Sally Virtue say? She did not hear Reddin's reply. It was fierce and low. She wondered who Sally Virtue was, but she was too tired to think much about it. Afterwards, Reddin had some whisky, and Vesans drank his health. Then Reddin picked out, It's a fine hunting day, on the old piano, and sang it in a rough tenor. Vesans joined in from the kitchen in a voice quite free from any music, and the roaring chorus echoed through the house. Ah, stop! I cannot abide it, cried Hazel, but they did not hear. Vesans came and stood in the doorway with the teapot in one hand and the expression of acute agony he always wore when singing. All trouble and care will be left far behind us at home. Not for the little foxes, cried Hazel, and she plucked the music from the piano and ran past Vesans, knocking the teapot out of his hand. She stuffed the music into the kitchen grate. Vesans was petrified. "'Well,' he said, "'you've got the ways of wild cats and spinsters the world over.' This was an unwilling compliment. "'And I'll say this for you, whatever else I can say. "'You've got spirit enough for the eleven thousand virgins.' Reddin felt that the scene was hardly festive enough. He wondered that he himself did not feel more jubilant. Reaction had set in. He wished that all should be gay as for a bridal, for he felt that this was a bridal in all but the name. But the old house, like a being lethargic after long revelry, clad in torn and stained garments, seemed unready for mirth. Andrew was highly antagonistic. The hound had bristled, growling at the intruder. And Hazel? He looked at Hazel under half-closed lids. Did she know what had happened? He thought not. Perhaps intuition whispered to her. Certainly she avoided his eyes. She sat drinking the tea, which Reddin, with much exertion of authority, at last caused to appear. She was wan, and her face looked very thin. Panic lingered about her eyes, at the corner of her lips. He realised that she was afraid of him his look, his touch. Immediately he wanted to exercise his power. He went across and took her chin in his hand, laying the other on her shoulder. Her eyelids trembled. What are you after mauling me? she said. Then a passion of tears shook her. Oh, I want Edward and the old lady. I want to go back to the mountain, I do. "'Edward'll be looking me up and down the country.' "'Good Lord, so he will,' said Reddin, 
and rousing the whole place. You must write a letter, Hazel, to say you're safe and happy and he's not to worry. But I am the... Reddin frowned at the spontaneity of this, but he made her write the note. Saddle the mare, Vesens, and take this to the mountain. You dunna mind how much, began Vesens, but Reddin cut him short. Get on, he said, and Vesens knew by the tone that he had better. Push it under the parson's door, knock, and make yourself scarce, Vesens, Reddin ordered. You can go up to bed if you like, Hazel. Left alone, he walked up and down the room, puzzled and uneasy. According to his idea, he had done Hazel the greatest honour a man can pay to a woman. He could not see in what he had failed. He was irritated with his conscience for being troublesome. He had, as he put it, merely satisfied a need of his nature, a need simple and urgent as eating and drinking. He did not understand that in failing to find out whether it was also a need of Hazel's nature, and in nothing else at all, lay his unpardonable crime. That he had offended against the views of his church did not worry him, for like many churchmen he had the happy gift of keeping profession and practice, dogma and deeds, in airtight compartments. How many of the most fervent churchmen are not, or have not been at some period of their lives, exactly like Reddin? Of course, I've been a bit of a beast in the past, he thought, but that's done with. Besides, she doesn't know. He reflected again. I suppose I was a bit rough, but she ought to have forgotten that by now. I do wish she wouldn't keep on so about the parson. He ran upstairs. Sorry I was rough, Hazel, he said shamefacedly. Hazel stood at the open window in a nightdress that she'd found in one of the chests, a frail yellowish thing with many frills of cobwebby lace made and worn by some dead woman on a forgotten bridle. It was symbolic of Hazel's whole life that she came in this way both to Undern and the mountain, as bare of woman's regalia as a winter leaf is of substance. Hazel was speaking when he entered. He stood still, astonished and suspicious. "'Who are you talking to?' he asked. She turned. "'Him above,' she said. "'I was saying the prayer Edward learnt me. "'I said it three times, it being midsummer, "'and ghosts going to and again, and the death-pack about. "'He'll be bound to hearken to Edward's prayer.' She looked small and pitiful, standing in the flickering candlelight. She turned again to the window, and Reddin went downstairs, quite overwhelmed and abashed. The house seemed eerier than ever, full of subdued complaints and whisperings. The faces of the roses round the window were woe-begone in the lamplight. The rustle of the leaves had an expostulatory sound. The wan poplars down the meadow looked accusing. It was almost as if the freemasonry of the green world was up in arms for Hazel. She had its blood in her veins and shared with it the silent worship of freedom and beauty, and had now been plunged so deeply into human life that she was lost to it. It was as if every incarnation of perfection that she had seen in leaf and flower, and she had seen much, though remaining without expression of it, 
every moment of deep comradeship with earthy, dewy things, every illumined memory of colours and lights that her vivid mind had gathered and cherished in its rage of love and rapture, had come now, pacing disdainfully through this old haunt of crude humanity, passing up the stairs, standing about the great four-poster where so many reddins had died and been born, gazing upon this face that had known dreams, however childish, of their eternal magic, grieving as the tree for the leaf that has fallen. They grieved, but they did not forgive, for the spirits of beauty and magic are, as the bondsman of colour knows and the bondsman of poetry, inimical to the ordinary life and destiny of man. They break up homes, they lead a thousand wanderers into the unknown, they brook no half-service. It is only the rarest exception when a man loves a woman and yet excels in his art, and a woman must have an amazing genius if she is still a poet after childbirth. But though sometimes these proud spirits will tolerate, will even be sworn companions of human love, it is only when it is a passion pure and burning that they know it for a sister spirit. In the sexual meeting of Hazel and Reddin there was nothing of this, though it brought out the best in Reddin, the best was so very poor, and Hazel was merely passive. So they stood and wept above her, and they forswore her company for ever. She might regard the primrose eye to eye, but she would receive no dewy look of comprehension. No lift of the spirit would come with the lifting leaves, no pang of mysterious pain with birdsong, star-set, dewfall. Even her love of Foxy would become a groping thing, and not any longer would she know when her blind bird made its tentative music all it meant and all it dreamed. This very night she had forgotten to lean out and listen as of old to the soft voices of the trees. She had said her prayer, and then she had been so tired, and pains had shot through her, and her back had ached, and she cried herself to sleep. What for did I go to the hunter's spinney? she asked herself. But the answer was too deep for her, the traitorous impulse of her whole being too mysterious. She could not answer her question. Reddin, pacing the room downstairs, drinking whisky and fuming at his own compunction, at last grew tired of his silent house. Damn it, why shouldn't I go up? he said. He opened Hazel's door. Look here, he said. The house is mine and so are you. I'm coming to bed. He was met by that most intimidating reply to all bluster. Silence. She was asleep, and all night long while he snored, she tossed in her sleep and moaned. End of chapter 26 Recording by Rachel Linton, Bristol, UK